From the Polium Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media. We're doing a special podcast today, looking at net neutrality from several different angles. As the FCC prepares to vote on whether or not to roll back net neutrality regulations, I thought it might be important to ask some questions that I have, and that I'm guessing you have too. What's at stake here in terms of the democratic process, in terms of the politics of representation, in terms of innovation? How does this even work technically? And what are the policy implications? Our podcast will be distributed as four separate installments for ease of listening and sharing. But I hope you'll see them as being of a piece that seeks to expand our understanding of what's at stake with net neutrality. Part four, warfare. In this installment, I sit down with Professor Barbara Cherry of the Media School at Indiana University. Before entering academia, Professor Cherry worked for many years in the telecommunications industry as an attorney for AT&T and as the director of public policy studies for Ameritech. She then served as senior counsel at the FCC in the Office of Strategic Planning and Policy Analysis. We talked about the wide-ranging economic and policy implications of this latest round of haggling over net neutrality. Barbara Cherry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. So I'd like to start with um, a metaphor that you have used to talk about the uh, recent net neutrality debates, and that is warfare. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean by that? Yes. Uh, net neutrality is a, refers to a public policy issue. It's not terribly well-defined, but it's a term that refers to a diversity of goals and problems related to encouraging widespread deployment and access to broadband technology. And in the context of this public policy debate, there are players who have very specific interests in how this policy debate evolves. I use warfare to explain how it's manifesting itself in the United States because net neutrality, as it's being experienced in the United States, is coming down to essentially a legal battle. It's a legal battle related to how that grows out of how our federal statute is written. And uh, under the Communications Act of 1934, the FCC was created. It was, um, the act was amended in 1996. And under this amended act, what's critical is how is a given communication service defined? What kind of classification does it have? And that classification determines the power of the FCC, what scope of authority and potential regulation would apply. This is a legal battle right now in the United States over whether broadband access to the Internet should be classified as a telecommunication service or an information service. And the classification is critical because depending upon which classification it holds, the FCC has differing jurisdiction and the regulatory framework or the minimum requirements imposed on entities who provide the respective services are different. Uh, the underlying legal battle are, is an economic battle in that uh, entities that provide broadband access to the Internet, uh, they are private entities, for-profit entities, and there's certain business practices or business models they, that they would like to use. But depending upon how the service is classified, those business practices may or may not be permitted. And then finally, the legal battle which is driven by economics, has also become a political battle because in the United States, 
um, how regulation is perceived has become very uh, polarized politically. Um, you have some people who think all regulation is bad, and therefore let's deregulate. You have other people that sometimes want to regulate too much, and how do you hit that sweet spot? Uh, in my view, what is happening here is that, well, let, let me put it back this way. Uh, and so depending upon, because of the political polarization, the classification of the service in the United States has been flipping back and forth between being a telecommunications service or an information service, depending upon which party, Republican or Democrat, has the majority of the FCC. Okay. And so the classification has not been stable. So that's why I use the metaphor uh, warfare. Okay. So let's, let's actually take those sort of one by one. So this classification system, we're really talking here about Title I versus Title II. Is that correct? Yes. If, if, if a service is classified as a telecommunications service, that's Title II, and it's considered a common carriage service. Okay. If a service is classified as an information service, that's called Title I, and that ha- has the service classification that's the weakest of all in terms of FCC jurisdiction and authority. Okay. Other services which are not at issue include, let's say, cable TV or broadcasting or even cellular telephone. Um, but what's relevant to this debate is telecom- telecommunication service versus information service. Okay, so so Title I is information service, Title II is yes. telecommunication service. And that yes. gets at the distinction between a public utility and a common carrier. Is that right? Or uh, not this quite? is where we have to be careful. Okay. You know, the, one of the things that's been unfortunately conflated in this debate is people tend to refer to common carriage as public utility, and that's not correct. Okay. Um, and that's one of the biggest, uh, whether intentional or unintentional, the conflation of common carriage with public utility is causing a lot of confusion in this debate. Common carriage, telecommunications service under federal law, is would be a common carriage service. That's not public utility. Okay. That's a different body of law. Common carrier means simply that you're you're providing a conduit to transport or transmit something of the customer's choosing. A physical one would be a railroad. Okay. A telecommunications form, historically, the older technology was telegraph and telephone. A public utility is something else. Public utility is a totally different body of law established under state law where a unit of government gives a franchise uh, to an entity to provide a service. Okay. And with that franchise comes an obligation to serve, um, but also some benefits like access to rights of way to lay your facilities or cable. Um, and it just so happens historically some entities are one or the other and sometimes both. Historically, telephone was both a common care and public utility, but for totally separate reasons. The issue before the FCC is not public utility, it's common carriage, but unfortunately, even the media persistently gets that wrong in their media story. Okay, so so what we're not talking about then, if I understand this, is the the what we're talking about with this new net neutrality debate is not like the water company, right? No. Which is public utility. No. Okay, so so there's some misrepresentation going on here, as you said, either intentionally yeah. or unintentionally. Um, yeah. So. The FCC- Here's the difference with a water company. A water com- company is delivering something to you, mm-hmm. like a commodity, okay, like water, gas, electricity. 
a common carrier is actually transporting something on behalf of the customer, like when you use a railroad. Okay. You can either use it as a passenger that's carrying your body or you're using it for to transport cargo for you. Well, telegraph and telephone historically tr- transmit or delivered content, but the content of what they delivered is what the customer chose to send over it. Okay. So, does that help? Yeah, that does help. So, so what yeah. would be the benefit of, uh, or who would benefit from this being labeled or understood as a public utility rather than what it is? Some parties prefer to use the term public utility because it confuses the public. Historically, public utilities, maybe, they don't have to be, but often they were monopolies. And so when you use the term public utility, you're trying to evoke a reaction by people who think, oh, you mean monopoly. And so when people say, oftentimes some net neutrality opponents say, well, you shouldn't classify us as a public utility because they're trying to get people to think in terms of monopoly. And so they claim, look, we're competitive. It's a competitive market. So if we're not a monopoly, you shouldn't regulate us. Okay. It's a public utility. Well, the thing is, common carrier has nothing to do with market structure, monopoly or not. Common carrier just simply means the kind of func- the functionality of your service. Is what you do transmission transport of okay. something of the customer's choosing? And so it doesn't matter what the market structure that is. It doesn't matter how many there are. It's the functionality of the service. Okay. Now, people who use public utility, some people who gain from that are those who are opposed to regulation, and they want people to misassociate monopoly with common carriage. Okay, so that, so that makes sense. It, so, it sounds like they're really, we're really shifting the rhetoric away from common carriage and into this kind of straw man of public utility, right? Is that? Yes, and unfortunately, the current chairman of the FCC is doing that repeatedly. Hmm. He's doing that repeatedly, not just verbally or orally in interviews, but even the way the draft order is written that they're going to vote on tomorrow. Okay. He keeps referring to classifying as Title II telecommunication service as being public utility-like regulation, and that's a misdirection. Unfortunately, that's a complete misdirection hmm. of oh. what's really going on, and it's done for political reasons, okay. as I mentioned, because this is legal-slash-economic-slash-political. It's done for political reasons why he's saying that. Because it because it benefits, there's some economic incentive here too, right? So, well, yes. I mean, for political reasons, it helps sell the idea that we need deregulation. Mm-hmm. Which, I'm, okay, so misassociate or misdirecting to think that Title II classification is public utility is a way of trying to claim that we're lessening regulation that isn't just isn't needed because it's a competitive environment. That's a total misrepresentation of what common carriage is. Okay. And it's political cover for doing something that, in actuality, if people really understood what common carriage is and why, historically, we have had the rules on common carriage we have, if people only understood the truth, they would then see the fallacy of the arguments that are being raised for not classifying as common carriage. Okay. So, so that, makes, that makes total sense that there's this political cover here. So let's talk about the economic yes. incentives here. Um, yes. And especially, I mean, we can talk about the incentives generally, but also in terms of the way the idea of innovation is being understood here, because both sides, it seems, want to play this innovation card, which is, on the one hand, net neutrality allows for innovative ideas that wouldn't normally see the light of day. Uh, no net neutrality or re- rolling back net neutrality rules would would spark innovation in infrastructure. Is that 
relatively accurate? Well, this is where, again, um, it's not totally accurate. Well, you're acting what some people are claiming, but it also is a smokescreen for what's really occurring. Okay. Uh, so let me say this. First of all, uh, broadband access to the Internet is a form of what we call a two-sided market. And what that means is one side of the market are the subscribers to broadband Internet access, you, me at home, whomever. And then the other side of the market are, is, are the content or application providers that you're reaching through your Internet access. Now, the relevance of understanding two-sided market is to help us understand what we mean by innovation. When you have a two-sided market, if the broadband Internet access provider is vertically integrated, for example, they not only provide broadband, but they also have ownership or interest in a content provider, they can use their platform from their internet access to discriminate among platform providers. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I mean, among, among content providers. Sure. This is what had happened historically when Comcast was trying to charge Netflix money to not throttle or slow down their traffic. Yeah. But at the same time, Comcast was not charging Hulu. Why? Because Comcast had an ownership interest in Hulu. And so, net neutrality. If you're common carrier status, you cannot discriminate in that way. And so people who are in favor of net neutrality, when they're saying it helps innovation, they mean it's because the lack of discrimination will enable new people uh, to innovate on the content side of the market or application side. It also would enable you and I, as customers, we are potentially content providers too. And on our side of the market, if you're a common carrier, you can't discriminate among us either. So that kind of innovation is actually helped by the net neutrality rule. Now, for those who are against net neutrality, the kind of innovation they are talking about are the kinds of innovation that might be possible because you have market power and because you are vertically integrated and because you might be able to bundle things or discriminate in certain ways. Now, from their perspective, there can be valuable forms of innovation, new products and services they can offer, but the problem is those can have downstream, what we call secondary downstream effects. So even though they could provide you some new things, it comes at a cost to society because the things that they want to create are discriminatory or have discriminatory impacts potentially on others. And so what has always happened in when we consider economic phenomena, is to keep in, fo- keep in mind what are the incentives of certain players, what are the benefits to them, and to what degree do they deviate from societal benefits. Common carriage is one of the long-standing bodies of law. is centuries old because it's so foundational like property rights and contract law. It's a foundational body of law that entities that do this kind of transmission or conduit function should not discriminate because there's too much potential harm societally that can come from that. So um, so when we talk about the innovation, oftentimes, even though they're using the same word, the proponents and opponents in Australia are really referring to different types of innovation that are enabled by the absence or existence of net neutrality rules. Okay. 
Now, um, you, I want to pick up on something. You mentioned foundational principles, and, and I want to turn to one of those in terms of a legal issue here, which is sure. the First Amendment. So one might say, well, uh, regulation of industry, of the market, is in some ways a potential threat to the First Amendment rights of a Comcast, a Time Warner, et cetera. Um, and um, how would you respond to that? Well, the First Amendment um, of the Constitution has a number of clauses. Collectively, they're referred to as uh, different freedoms of expression. The particular First Amendment clause you're referring to here has to do with freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. And the First Amendment um, only applies to government action that might impair speech. Um, over time, throughout the history of the United States, the courts have had to interpret how to apply freedom of speech uh, under the U.S. Constitution in regard to other forms of regulation. And this is what's important here. Under long-standing jurisprudence in the United States, if you are a business that's in the function of common carriage, you are not considered a speaker for First Amendment purposes. Therefore, to put some regulatory obligations on you, like to not discriminate among people that you serve, uh, is considered per- totally permissible and appropriate regulation consistent with our First Amendment. And, that, and that's because you're simply a conduit. Yes, it's okay. the whole point. Since you are holding yourself to be a conduit, then you are not a speaker as to what you're carrying. Okay. Now... Over time, as different technologies evolved, a broadcaster, as it's evolved in the United States, like radio, TV, broadcasting, is not considered common carriage because the broadcaster is determining the content that they choose to broadcast or not. Mm -hmm. And therefore, from time to time throughout history in the United States, when there's been attempts to regulate some of the business models um, or conduct of broadcasters, the courts have to look at the balance between that economic regulation and the First Amendment or free speech rights of the underlying provider. Mm-hmm. And so that's not as clear cut. So government has some room to regulate even those technologies, but those technologies also have some significant First Amendment rights. Okay. So why the importance of you bringing up the, the issue about First Amendment is the following. A key strategy underlying this legal warfare I've been referring to is for companies who are seeking not to be common carriers, in other words, to be an information service provider instead. They're doing that also for legal reasons. So if they're not a common carrier, then they do have some free speech rights, and they will use that as the legal basis to potentially challenge future in the future any attempt by government to regulate them by claiming it violates our free speech rights. And so that's actually a, a, a tactic that the lawyers are having, they want in their hip pocket okay. to challenge regulation. So this is another reason why the legal battle over classification is so important, because whether you're a common carrier or not affects the relationship of that entity with other bodies of law that have developed over centuries. Okay. And so it sounds like you know, I think, um, so antitrust, which would be another remedy here, um, were, a, were a company who that was not listed as a common carrier, if they were acting um, as a monopoly. So antitrust remedies might be a little more difficult. 
Well, antitrust law has to, is, is a body of law that applies generally to businesses to prohibit certain forms of conspiracy or restraints of trade um, and uh, or certain forms of monopolization. Antitrust law, however, cannot be used to prohibit forms of discrimination in the way that common carriage does. Okay. Antitrust law was not designed to do that. In fact, antitrust law developed after and as an adjunct to common carriage law. Oh, okay. Antitrust law precedes antitrust. Antitrust developed as an additional body of law and at the federal level, not until the 1890 was the first antitrust act. And that's developed in response to the growth of corporate power mm-hmm. during the 19th century with the Industrial Revolution and more economies of scale and manufacturing and the building of trust. Antitrust law has much less applicability and, and it was not designed to deal with the kinds of discrimination problem um, that common carriage does. So it's really not an adequate remedy okay. at all. And this is part of the smokescreen, however. Yeah. People against antitrust will try and claim, well, antitrust law will pick it up. Well, if you're a lawyer and you know how these bodies of law fit together, you know that's not true. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's sort of like saying, well, the safeguard is there, but it's really not there. It's just... A- it's not really. It's not. And here's the other thing, too. The Federal Trade Commission is uh, another federal agency to which some power has been given to help oversee antitrust, but it's the legal standard where it applies has only to do with uh, unfair deceptive practices. So first of all, the FTC would only help you if a company was discriminating against you, but they just weren't clear that they were. All all company would have to do, if they're not a common carrier, they just have to explain they're discriminating. As long as they're transparent in their terms and conditions of service, the FTC can't do anything. Mm-hmm. They can't outlaw. The other thing, too, is FTC has no rulemaking authority. So it cannot, it's not an expert agency that's given any authority by Congress to develop rules to deal with specific problems. The FCC does. So these are very different entities with different powers, and when they be invoked, they're very different. So for common carriage and the type of problems that, have, that occur with common carriage when you're a conduit function, only common carriage law deals with it. The other bodies of law do not. Okay. So it's, as, as we're talking, it sounds to me like what's really at stake here with the net neutrality debates is not necessarily a technical uh, fix of something or, I mean, it's got in economic incentives and all this stuff. But what's really at stake here is, a, a, once again, a sort of tension or maybe even a battle between public interest and private interest. Exactly. It's just another manifestation. Okay. And, you know, and listeners should understand... I worked in the telecom industry for 15 years. I worked for AT&T and Ameritech. I also worked at the FCC for just under five years. And I understand fully the need for private sector entities to be able to have financial viable business models. Mm-hmm. And certainly in the environment we're in today, they're driven a lot by short-term profit motives. They have to worry about their stock prices this week, this month. And so a lot is done with a short-term focus as well. So the issue is not to disable these companies from being profitable. You want them to be profitable, financially sustainable, and viable concern. The problem is when 
they, at the same time, you have to protect the public interest or societal repercussions from how they conduct their businesses. And it turns out certain forms of common carriage become such critical infrastructures to society that the societal impacts can be quite dramatic. So, for example, if you are a conduit function, but you're not considered a common carrier, you can discriminate against people. If you said you're an information service, you could have two people living next door, and the entity could say, I'll serve one person, but not your neighbor. Hmm. If you're a common carrier, you can't do that. No. Or you could say, I'll charge you different prices for the exact same thing. If you're a common carrier, you can't do that. But you can understand why a private entity, if they could do that, they could extract, they could either save costs by not serving everybody, or they could extract more money if they felt some people could afford to pay more than others. I mean, from a strictly economic perspective, if they could price discriminate more, they could earn more money. But with a critical infrastructure and such a critical component of commerce in our democracy, do we want that kind of discrimination? And that's where now you start have you start enabling. Um, this is where you can start having uh, where the critical infrastructure could be used to actually um, uh, further inequalities of people's experience in commerce or democracy, as opposed to having it be more equally treated. It's sort of like having a postal system that only can pick and choose where it wants to serve. Hmm. And public, by the way, the postal system is a common carriage system, but it happens to be government. Yeah. But that's kind of, because all what they do is they accept packages or mail for you and they mail it for you. They deliver it for you. That's common carriage. And of course, they can charge different rates for speed, right? Yes. Well, what it is with a common carrier, the restriction is no unreasonable discrimination. Yeah. The key is unreasonable. So they can charge if there is a genuine difference in what they're offering, like different speeds of delivery, that can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but the customer has to have the ability to choose which one. Yes. In other words, the customer chooses whether I want express delivery or regular first class mail. Yes. The whole point is that you have to allow the customer to choose which service they want and then not discriminate among customers who choose the service that they want. Okay. Um, also, if you have, like with, with railroads, they can charge differently for hauling oil, oil tankers, as opposed to corn. One is a much more hazardous substance, has to have greater care. Um, so if there is a genuine difference in cost to the carrier performing the service, they can certainly charge differently. That would be considered a form of reasonable discrimination. So sometimes, too, when people say net neutrality, net neutrality means no unreasonable discrimination. Yes. So it's not a matter of the, these companies are now hamstrung. They can't make any kind of distinctions between anything. They can package. They can do so if it's reasonable. Yes, if it's reasonable. So, Yes. The problem is they were unilaterally using it as a way to try and extract money, like, yeah. they, like what Comcast was doing against Netflix. They were throttling traffic mm-hmm. slower just so they could extract money from Netflix to say, well, if you want a higher speed of delivery to your customers, you've got to pay us. Mm-hmm. Well, to do that for Netflix but not do it for Hulu when they're similarly situated, that's a form of unreasonable discrimination. Professor Barbara Cherry, this has been extraordinarily helpful, I have to say. This is, this is, uh, this is amazingly informative, and I want to thank you for your time. 
Well, thank you for the opportunity because this is such an important public policy issue. And one of the challenges our society is facing so many important policy issues. It's hard to know enough about all these different things to have a clue of what's going on. So to the degree to which I can contribute in some small way to helping people better understand this issue, I'm happy to do so. Well, I truly appreciate that, and I know the listeners do too. So thank you very much. Thank you. Barbara Cherry is a professor in the telecommunications department of the Media School at Indiana University, where she researches and teaches courses on public policy, deregulation, communications infrastructure, media law, and economics. Thanks for listening to this special set of episodes about net neutrality on modern media. My hope is that by asking questions that I think we all have, we can get a deeper understanding of what's really at stake here. Modern Media is a production of the Pulliam Center for Contemporary Media at DePaul University. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm JNP, and this is Modern Media.